Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. Much like our last episode, this will also be a volcano. This one is much closer to now, and much better documented. This is the eruption at Mount Vesuvius. Well, much closer to now is relative, I guess. Mount Vesuvius is a volcano along the western coast of the Italian peninsula. It's about 160 miles south of Rome proper. Mount Vesuvius is a stratovolcano, meaning the layers of the volcano have built up from hardened lava. Mount Vesuvius grew out of an older, larger volcano, Mount Salma, after Mount Salma erupted and collapsed into a caldera sometime prior to the famous Mount Vesuvius eruption. So, a long time before the famous Mount Vesuvius eruption. Mount Vesuvius is part of the Campanian volcanic arc that formed when the African tectonic plate was shoved underneath the Eurasian tectonic plate. Vesuvius remains an active volcano to this day, with eruptions happening at a fairly regular interval. Not major eruptions, like the 79 AD one, but decent enough eruptions nonetheless. But we're not here for that. We're here for the most famous of Vesuvius eruptions, the 79 AD one. The one everyone knows happened. And as everyone knows, Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed the city of Pompeii. But it wasn't just Pompeii that was destroyed. The Roman towns of Herculaneum, Aplantis, Stabae, and other small settlements were destroyed. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself right now, though. So I'm going to start out with the founding of Pompeii. So Pompeii was most likely founded in the 6th century BCE by either the Greeks or the Etruscans. It's not really known which one is which. Stuff that's dated back that far in Pompeii is generally 50-50 Etruscans and Greeks. The Etruscans were a Italian tribe. The Greeks were the Greeks. During the Second Punic War, Pompey fought with Rome against Hannibal, then fought against Rome in the Social War. Then in 80 BCE, it was refounded as a colony for Sulla's veterans who Pompey had surrendered to in 89 BCE after Pompey and the Italians lost the Social War. Real quick explanation, the Social War was when the Italian peninsular allies of Rome decided they were tired of being second-class citizens to the Romans, even though they'd been loyal allies for a long time, and fought for the right to be citizens, which they would then get. But Rome still won the social war. It's extremely complicated. The ancient world is really weird. And just for reference, Sulla was the guy who became dictator for life, who then resigned dictator for life after basically purging all of his enemies from Rome, and kind of gave Julius Caesar the idea to be dictator for life. The ancient world is... Well, it's weird. So, let's start our full narrative with the volcano in the year 62 AD. The Roman historian Tacitus offhand mentions that an earthquake destroyed the town of Pompeii in Campania. Literally just mentioning that the Vestal Virgin Lelia died in the earthquake, and that's pretty much it. And real quick before we move on, in the same paragraph he mentions that a gymnasium was struck by lightning and burned to the ground, which isn't the interesting part. The interesting part is it contained a bronze statue of Nero, he of not playing the fiddle but the lyre, as Rome burned fame. That statue was melted down into a shapeless blob in the fire. 
kind of some foreshadowing for about two years later when Rome would burn down and Nero would be off and on blamed for that fire. Not that he necessarily was to blame, or maybe he was, but that's for a later date when I eventually get to the Great Fire of Rome. And then there is a second potential earthquake the next year in 63 AD, or it might be the same earthquake. It's hard to tell. This second earthquake, or same earthquake, was reported by the Roman philosopher Seneca. He goes into much greater detail from actual eyewitness accounts. He reports that Pompeii was reduced to ruins and Herculaneum was on the verge of collapse. One eyewitness account relays that an entire flock of sheep fell over dead. He states that these sheep did not die from shock or being crushed, but a poisonous gas, which indicates that this earthquake was likely related to Vesuvius volcanic activity. And another claims that a man was taking a bath and the tiles split apart, sucking the water in. When the shaking stopped, the tiles pushed back together, and the water erupted out of the ground like a geyser, which would totally make that either the most terrifying or the coolest bath ever. Either way, there was at least one major earthquake in Pompeii and Herculaneum prior to the eruption at Mount Vesuvius. Just quick backstory on Herculaneum, because I didn't include it with Pompeii. It's alleged to have been founded by the Greek hero Heracles. Hercules. We all know Hercules. However, according to another source, Strabo, Strabo was a Greek historian right around the turn of the millennium, he says that it was founded by the Oscans, which was an Italian tribe, and that was then followed by Etruscan and then Greek control, and the Greeks renamed the town Heracleon and used it as a trading post, and then after that it became under the control of the Samnites, who were another tribe in the Italian peninsula, until it became a Roman town after one of the Samnite Wars, and then it participated in the Social War, and it was defeated by one of Sola's commanders. So anyway, back to the story. So that eruption was about 17 or so years before the eruption. People were obviously going to move back. You don't just have one earthquake and then just never live in the area again. That would eliminate, like, a huge portion of the world to live on. And move back they did. Pompeii and the surrounding area were fairly well populated at the time of the eruption. It's estimated that Pompeii held about 12,000 people with about the same amount all over the countryside. So 24,000 people, give or take, in the area immediately surrounding Vesuvius. The eruption at Mount Vesuvius happened in either August or October of 79 AD. Yes, I know, another date debate. There are going to be many date debates the further back you get in history. There are several reasons for the conflicting date. The reason we know so much about the Mount Vesuvius eruption is because a man by the name of Pliny the Younger wrote two letters to the historian Tacitus describing the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. He wrote these letters many years after actually witnessing the eruption. Some copies of these letters have a date that corresponds to August 24, 79 AD, but not all the copies of the letter have this date. So it's possible someone messed up and added it on accident or counted wrong and got the wrong date. The Romans didn't exactly use a super simple way to figure out what dates correspond to now in the first place. It's also possible that Pliny the Younger just messed up what day it happened on. He wrote the letter to Tacitus in about 106 AD, which is 27 years after the eruption, give or take, and 
I mean, he was, I believe, 65 at the time he wrote the letters, thereabout. And I'm 27, and I can barely remember what I had for dinner. So it's very likely that he just got the date wrong. Or someone added a date trying to make a date and screwed it up. As for the October date, that is more supported through scientific and archaeological evidence. My personal favorite piece of evidence is that in Pompeii, archaeologists found a house that was undergoing construction and or renovations. It, either one. Scribbled on the wall is a piece of graffiti written in charcoal. I am not at all good at pronouncing Latin, so I'll just tell you the English translation. On October 17th, he overindulged in food. Literally, some construction worker ate too much lunch, and while lying down in a food coma, decided to scribble on the wall that he was bloated in a place that no one would ever see it again, and it ended up potentially moving the date of one of the most important volcanic eruptions in history. I'm trying to imagine all the times I've overeaten at lunch being immortalized in history, and it just cracks me up. This dude was just like, ah, I'm going to scribble behind this wall that I'm going to cover up later with plaster, most likely. No one will ever know it's there. And the reason we think that it's more likely that it happened in October, or November to be honest, is because the charcoal would have likely worn off pretty quickly if it had been there for several months or whatever. It's unlikely that that charcoal would have survived as long as it did if it wasn't encased in, you know, a buttload of volcanic material. So, for all you construction workers out there, and I know that everyone does this, I've done this, that scribbling you did behind the wall before you put the drywall up, cursing the owner of the house for some stupid thing they made you change, or complaining about whatever food your contractor gave you for lunch, make sure you put the date down so that if it happens to have a volcano erupt nearby, people will be able to date it to the right time. But random work eating too much and being bloated isn't the only evidence for the October date rather than the August date or November date. The other evidence is that in the excavations of Pompeii and surrounding towns, archaeologists have found the remains of grapes and pomegranates that would have been harvested after the August date. Also, numerous people found in the remains of the towns around Vesuvius have been found in warm clothing, suggesting a cooler temperature than normal for August in Campania. But really, the graffiti is what really sells it for me. And yes, I am of the opinion that it happened later than August. All of the evidence that we have leads to it happening in October or November. It's very likely that either Pliny the Younger wrote down the date wrong, or somebody somewhere just accidentally added a date and there's no way they knew why or where that date came from. So, in the days leading up to the eruption, earthquakes began to shake the region around Pompeii and Naples. These were the first warnings that something was amiss, but unfortunately, the people around Campania were very, very used to small earthquakes shaking the area, so they more or less ignored it. On the day of the eruption, the morning started out normal. Well, normal for our one eyewitness. It was a clear day, and then around one in the afternoon, our eyewitness, Pliny the Younger, and his mother observed an oddly shaped cloud that had just formed across the bay from where they were staying in Mycenaeum. This was the second of what are currently believed to be several eruptions in total. 
He described it as a pine tree that shot up and spread out across the sky horizontally, saying it was sometimes light-colored and sometimes mottled in gray. Pliny the Younger's uncle, the aptly named Pliny the Elder, was in command of the local fleet at Missinum. When the towering column of smoke appeared, Pliny the Elder boarded a boat to get closer and see what was going on. Pliny the Elder would never make it back. As he was leaving their home, he was headed, handed a letter from a friend across the bay. His friends were terrified and had no way of escape except by boat, so Pliny the Elder immediately decided he was going to save his friends. This is the indication that there had already been an eruption as the messenger arrived on what was like, most likely horseback after a several hour long journey. So the first eruption was most likely in the morning and much, much smaller was only seen by the people on the other side of the bay. That explains why the messenger seems to arrive right at the time that Pliny the Elder was leaving, because otherwise he invented teleportation, and teleportation would have been really handy in this situation. But continuing on with Pliny the Elder's story here, as they were getting closer to the other shore, the ash that was then falling from the sky turned from ash to bits of pumice and rock. They eventually made it to Stebe, where the friend lived. There were, they observed large fires all along the sides of Mount Vesuvius, which Pliny the Elder convinced his terrified friends were just empty homes burning left by peasants who were fleeing and that everything was fine. Pliny, the apparent badass, then decided it was bedtime and straight up went to sleep and apparently slept so well that he was snoring. Literally snoring through an active volcanic eruption which had forced everyone to take cover inside earlier in the evening because so much ash and rock was following down on them. I can't imagine being like, hmm, there's all these earthquakes. There is fire all up and down this mountain. There's a giant cloud emitting from the top of the mountain. Ah, no big deal. I'm going to take a nap. There is absolutely no way I would be able to sleep through all of that. It's literally active earthquakes the entire time. The entire time, it is actively erupting, basically from that morning until a full day later, the next day in the evening. There's ash falling everywhere. There's people running around and screaming outside. There are, you can see fires up and down the mountain. Like, who just is like, man, I'm going to go to sleep, man, I'm pretty tired. What, did you row across the bay? No, you're an admiral. You're not rowing anywhere. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Eventually, his friends became worried again because violent earthquakes continued, and, uh, duh, who would blame them? They woke up plenty and decided that the falling ash and rock was too much to stay. They were afraid the building was going to collapse on their heads, so they tied pillows to their heads and took off on foot. They would make it down to the beach, but unfortunately the wind had not changed to allow them to sail away. That was the original reason they didn't immediately turn around once they got to Stebe. The wind was in favor of going towards Vesuvius. The wind was not in favor of going away from Vesuvius. So when they landed, they were like, ah, we're going to be stuck here until the wind changes. So they just stayed. And when they decided that, ah, there's a lot of ash building up on this house and some of these buildings around us have started to collapse, maybe we should leave, they uh, made it to the beach and were like, oh, no, the wind's not working here. We're going to have to sit here and wait a while. So they decided to hang out. Uh, Pliny the Elder sat down on the beach, and then he died. Literally, just straight up kicked the bucket right there on the beach. 
Pliny the Younger claims it was gases from the mountain that killed him, but all of the people in the party he was with survived, so that doesn't seem to check out since they would have been right near him. Suetonius, another Roman historian, claims that Pliny the Elder was killed by a slave to avoid the heat of the volcano. Modern theories are that he died of a heart attack or a stroke, and it's alleged that Pliny the Elder was a pretty large dude, and it was probably a pretty stressful time, regardless of him being able to take a nap during the middle of an active volcano, so it's possible that he died of a heart attack. Either way, his body was found days later with no external injuries. In the end, it doesn't really matter how he died, he just did. At this point, it's into day two of the eruption. The first day was marked by what has become known as a Plinian eruption, with a giant towering cloud and ash fall over the surrounding area. This mostly covered areas south and slightly east of Vesuvius, so Pompeii and Aplantis and Stabae. Herculaneum was saved from a lot of the ash fall by the wind. The first day was really the only day to escape. During those first hours of the afternoon and into the second day, the roofs of Pompeii were covered with at least nine feet of pumice and ash. This caused several building collapses and crushed several people to death inside those buildings. Because, seriously, what choice do you have in this situation? Hide inside and hope it stops before your roof caves in, or go outside and risk interrupting more and cooking you alive, or being beaten by super hot rocks falling from the sky? You really don't have any good choices in this situation. My personal choice would be uh, run, but um, I would have started running after the first axe started falling from the sky, so... I'm probably not the correct one to ask. Uh, my family would be out. I am not going to be in the area of a volcano at all, ever, in my life. Well, I'll go visit one of the Hawaiian ones where the lava just kind of pops up, but I can watch it from a safe distance and know that it's not going to send, you know, flying rocks at me. But uh, this one, yeah, I'm getting out as soon as that first one happens. We are packing our stuff and we are going. The second day would not give anyone time to escape. The second day of the eruption is when the surges of gas, ash, rock, lava, bits of super hot rock began to flow down the mountain and really began to bury Pompeii and Herculaneum and Alplantis and Stabae. These surges buried Herculaneum to a depth of about 70 feet. Pompeii would receive a similar treatment. Anyone who had stayed behind that managed to live through the first couple surges of volcanic material were now figuratively and literally cooked. No one left behind would survive. If they somehow managed to survive the heat, they'd be buried alive. That second thing didn't happen, though, because of the temperature. And let's talk about that heat for a second. So it's estimated that the first couple flows of volcanic material into Pompeii were relatively cool. Well relatively cool once they reached the city and relatively cool compared to other super hot gases flowing from a volcano. Before entering Pompeii, the temperatures ranged from about 572 degrees Fahrenheit to 680 degrees Fahrenheit, so 300 degrees Celsius to 360 degrees Celsius for everyone else that's not American. But once the flows entered the city, they dropped down to a nice comfy 212 degrees Fahrenheit to 428 degrees Fahrenheit. 100 degrees Celsius to 220 Celsius, which you'll note is still too hot to live. So your best bet is you get to sit in an area that is literally at the temperature of boiling water. But why is there a drop of temperature? 
Interestingly enough, it's due to the interaction with the existing buildings and the settlements. They cooled off the lower portion of the flow, so the disruption in the flow and the absorption of the heat into the buildings allowed for them to drop temperature pretty significantly. Not enough to live, but, I mean, once you get to that point, it's like, yeah, do I want to boil or do I just want to straight up cook? But then, after that first flow, a second, bigger flow entered Pompeii. And it was traveling at an estimated 111 miles per hour. So let's just, for fun, say you managed to survive the temperature of 212 degrees. You would not, but let's just say that you somehow managed to survive that. Your lungs are literally burning. Your skin is burning. You can't see anything because your eyes are, you know, burning. And just a few seconds later, you get hit by a wall of ash, pumice, and lava bits going 111 miles per hour. And there's no temperature decrease this time. The first flow took care of that. The second flow was just pure 572 degrees Fahrenheit to 680 degrees Fahrenheit. There was no difference in temperature. The first flow had already used up all the energy that was available to take the temperature out of the buildings. And just for fun, let's say you managed to survive the supremely hot temperatures you would then die from the impact of the 111 mile per hour wall of volcanic material that just smacked you. It literally knocked walls over. That It was going so fast, there was so much impact behind it, it knocked walls over. So you're not outside, you get hit, you're inside, the wall you're next to collapses on you. Or you're outside and you get hit by a wall and tumbled and you know burned alive. It's, this was brutal. Most people had no idea they would have died basically instantly, but still, if you managed to survive any of that, it would have been just absolute misery. Alright, so that's what's going on in Pompeii. Literal hell on earth. That's, that's what's going on in Pompeii. So what was our friend Pliny the Younger doing at this time? Well, he had stayed across the bay in Messinum in order to study, which is, you know, a choice. It was the smart choice. He tried to sleep, but apparently was not as sound a sleeper as his uncle and kept being woken up by violent earthquakes, which is completely reasonable. So he sat up all night with his mom and watched the sea. By 6 a.m., the buildings were rocking so violently they were afraid they'd collapse on them, so they decided it was high time to get out of Dodge. It was high time to get out of Dodge well before this point, but at least they decided it eventually. Pliny makes a point at this point in his letter, to say that they were followed by a panic-stricken mob out of the town and insinuates that they were not scared at all and this mob was just people who couldn't think for themselves. You know, the usual bravado people like to boast about after a major disaster in which they massively panicked and didn't know what to do, but they want everyone to know just how brave they were and no one really cares or was there to dispute it, so I'm just going to talk about how cool and brave I am for not being afraid of the giant erupting volcano on the other side of the bay that's literally killing thousands of people at this point. It is nice to know that humanity really hasn't changed after 2,000 years, but anyway. So, Pliny, his mom, and some other people are traveling along, and all of a sudden, the carriages they were in began to rock back and forth, even though the ground was completely flat. Another earthquake. 
They even got out and wedged rocks underneath the wheels to keep them from moving, but it, they literally just wheeled over the, we, the rocks they put under the wheels because, again, it's an earthquake. Then they looked out in the ocean, and all of a sudden it sucked backwards, stranding all sorts of fish creatures on dry land. This is an indication of an earthquake and a coming tsunami. He looked across the bay and saw a giant black cloud going straight up in the air, only lit up by the occasional flash of lightning. So that lightning is basically bits of volcanic particles that are colliding with each other inside the volcanic plume, and they created a static discharge between the two of them, creating that lightning. And that's why you see some lightning in volcanic eruptions. That's what was happening here. All over the cloud and behind it were huge sheets of flame. And not long after seeing this giant cloud, it collapsed and spread outward, covering the sea headed straight for them. Pliny started to try and escape with his mother as the cloud began to come closer to them, and ash began to fall. Looking behind him, he saw the cloud of ash was coming at him faster than they can run, and his mom tried to get him to leave him there, but he refused. So they decided to turn off the road and wait it out for fear that if they tripped and fell on the road, they would be trampled by those continuing to flee the cloud, especially when the cloud got to them and it was dark. And then the cloud arrived, and it went black. Now, Pliny goes into pretty good detail about how truly dark it was. He said it wasn't like a moonless night where you can still see because of the stars or ambient light or whatever, but truly pitch black. He describes it as when a room is completely closed and all the lights are out. You can't see anything. The only thing he could hear is the screams of women, children, and men all trying to find each other in the darkness. As he's sitting there, it gets a little lighter, but uh, not because of sunlight. It was yet another flash of flames from Vesuvius, and then black again, and then another flash of flames, and then black again. And this whole time, they're being rained on by ash, which they would periodically have to stand up and shake off for fear of being buried underneath it all. And can you imagine just sitting there and eventually dying from being buried by ash? You broke your leg and you literally couldn't stand up and you just had to wait for the ash to fall on you and eventually suffocate you? That is a truly terrible way to go. And there's a part in the letter Pliny wrote that is just absolutely hilarious. I'm going to read it in full because it's just that good. He writes, I might boast that during all this scene of horror, not a sigh or expression of fear escaped me, had not my support been grounded in that miserable, though mighty, consolation that all mankind were involved in the same calamity and that I was perishing with the world itself. Basically, Pliny says he wasn't scared to die because everyone else was going with him. Iconic. But soon the sun started to sort of break through the darkness and they realized they were going to survive. So, the number of casualties from the eruption is more or less unknown. Everyone knows of the casts made from bodies found in Pompeii and Herculaneum, but it's unknown if those were all casualties or not. Most likely, they are not. There were probably many more who died in the rush to escape the initial eruptions. Trampled to death, heart attacks, things like that. I mean, Pliny, the Elder, is a perfect example of one. He probably died of a heart attack, and I don't think he's counted as a victim of the eruption. So far, about 1,200 bodies have been recovered from Pompeii. Well, sort of. 
394 bodies have been discovered in the pumice and ashfall layer. These are the ones who died during building collapses during the whole buttload of ash that fell down on that first day. About 650 bodies were found in the pyroclastic layers. This is the part where people cook to death in the super hot temperatures. And I mean legit cooked to death. Like in seconds cooked. One guy's brain literally turned to glass in a process known as vitrification. And then the bone material of around 100 other bodies were found scattered throughout Pompeii. About three quarters of the area of Pompeii covered has been excavated. So there are still some areas left to uncover and probably more bodies. Herculaneum, on the other hand, had a decidedly different body recovery toll. So there have been about 300 bodies found in Herculaneum so far. Many of those have been found along the beach and in the boathouses near the beach. But unlike Pompeii, where the people had the warning of the axe falling and then were hit with the superheated temperatures that cooked them in literal seconds, the people of Herculaneum got the view of the eruption and maybe a little bit of asphalt, then got cooked alive in the boathouses trying to get away. And there's an interesting debate about one of the skeletons found in the boathouse at Herculaneum. One of the skeletons appears to be a soldier, which by itself isn't super interesting, but the theory is that he may have been a member of the evacuation fleet sent by Pliny the Elder to rescue victims, because when he first set out, to go across the bay before he got the note, he was sending his boats out, number one, to observe, and number two, to perform rescue missions of all of the cities up and down the coast. So it's possible that this soldier was sent there in order to rescue people from Herculaneum. Just an interesting tieback. Pliny himself obviously went to Stabae, but it isn't out of the realm of possibility he sent a boat to Herculaneum to save people there. The guy has intricate armor and weapons, and he had the same amount of gold and silver coins in his purse as a member of the Praetorian Guard earned in a month. That means he was most likely a higher-ranking officer in the fleet, or something of that nature. It's pretty fiercely debated on whether or not he was actually a part of the rescue fleet. Honestly, we will probably never know, but it is interesting. So obviously, if something like this happened now, there would be a massive rescue effort and a massive relief effort from all over the world. There'd be money sent in, there'd be hashtags on Twitter and Facebook and profile pictures and blah, 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 blah. So what was it like in ancient Rome? The emperor at the time was Titus, who literally had just become emperor. Like, he became emperor the 24th of June in 79 AD. So if the August date is right, he'd been emperor for all of two months. If the October or later date is right, he'd been emperor for four to five months max. Talk about an early testamental fortitude. But by all accounts, Titus responded well. He immediately sent two former consuls to run the relief efforts. He used the estates of any victims who had no descendants left and gave them to victims who had lost everything and survived. He used the imperial funds to help rebuild the area and provide food and shelter for the victims. And then he refused any gifts offered to him by the people in repayment. He also traveled to the area at least twice to visit the destruction and meet victims. By all accounts, it was a good disaster response. Interestingly enough, he visited later in 80 AD at the same time that there was a massive fire in Rome, different from the original Great Fire of Rome, that then followed a plague. So Titus really did not have a great first two years as emperor, and, well, the rest of his reign wouldn't go much better since he died the 13th of September, 81 AD. So he was literally emperor for all of 
two-ish years, give or take. By all accounts, Titus was a decently good emperor for, you know, how good an ancient emperor can be when they're slaves and all that kind of stuff. And he died of a fever, allegedly, in the same farmhouse where his father, Vespasian, had died. And the last words he uttered, which, again, these are alleged last words, were, I have made but one mistake. Nobody knows what that one mistake was, but it wasn't his disaster response at all, because he did much better than some people have done now. The 79 AD is estimated at a 5 on the VEI scale. That means about a cubic kilometer was ejected out of Vesuvius over the course of the eruption, which makes sense with how much of the area surrounding it was covered. And now I know what you're thinking, will Vesuvius erupt again? The answer is yes. It has many times since that one, but nothing of that magnitude. But it could happen again, and that is a major issue. It's estimated that about 600,000 people or so live in the red zone under serious threat from a 79 AD-style eruption. The warning time is estimated to be a maximum of three weeks or so, so they would have to evacuate basically a half a million people out of the area and at the maximum of 21 days a gargantuan task that would probably prove to be nearly impossible. The Italian government has tried to implement a national park around Vesuvius to prevent more people from moving in, and they have provided incentives to people to move out, but few have taken the offer. It's likely that if it erupted as it did in 79 AD, the casualties could be catastrophic. Luckily, it appears that Vesuvius currently sits at a low possibility of eruption. And with that, we've reached the end of our episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Disastrous History, H-S-T-R-Y, so Disastrous H-S-T-R-Y without the vowels. You can also follow me on Instagram at Disastrous History spelled correctly, and also TikTok, Disastrous History spelled correctly. TikTok has short videos that cover disasters that I may not get to just because there's not enough information, or disasters that have been covered, or disasters that will be covered in future episodes. It's not bad. Uh, you can also contact me at disastroushistory at gmail.com. And you can visit our website, disastroushistory.com, where you can read all the articles, all the episodes, that is, as articles, rather than having to listen to talk, me talk. So, with that, I hope you guys stay safe. Check your dryer lint traps. And remember to check your smoke detector batteries. <laughs>